So let's turn back to Ephesians chapter 1. And I want to read just that portion of Scripture once again. I said this morning for perhaps those who weren't here, we are looking at the longest sentence in the Bible. And I would suggest to you it is the grandest sentence in all the Bible. That Paul writes verses 3 through to verse 14 is one sentence in the Greek. Even though in the English you might have full stops and commas and various other punctuation marks, it is one sentence. Uh, Very Pauline, very much his style, long sentences. But in verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. I want to continue in our journey this afternoon for just a little while as we look at God's eulogy part two. Now, if you weren't here this morning, that's going to make no sense whatsoever. You're going to have to listen to the message. We're looking at God's eulogy, part two. We've already considered the first point, blessed be God, found in verse three. Blessed be God. And then we looked at the God who blesses. We see in verse three, he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And we're now presently partway through the third and final point which deals with specifically the blessings of God. And uh, you'll remember, if you were here this morning, that we began by looking at the Father's election, verses 4 through to 6. And we looked at what that meant, what it meant for the Father to elect before the foundation of the world, how that all operates, and that we should be holy and blameless before Him, His purpose in that, and that He destined or predestined us for adoption, There in verse 4 and 5, through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will. And we looked at what adoption is and what a remarkable thought it is that God should adopt us. And then we realize that in verse 6, it's to the praise of his glorious grace with which he blessed us in the beloved. And so we, uh, if you were here this morning, you'll recall that the first part, 3 to 6, is all about the father's work. And then you'll note that uh, verses 6 or the end of 6 to verse 12 is the Son's work. And then verses 13 to 14 is the Spirit's work. 
And so we looked at the Father's election, verses 4 and 5 and part of 6. Now we continue our journey beginning at the end of verse 6 as we look at this thought, the Son's redemption. The Son's redemption. If you'll uh, note there, verse 7 and 8, the Bible says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. We're going to look at the Son's redemption, and then finally, we're going to look at the Spirit's application as our Last point before we close. Let's just uh, pray. Father, thank you for a time in your word. I pray now, Lord, as we would look at uh, this specific subject, uh, Lord, uh, that you would help us to concentrate for these few moments, help us to have eyes that are ready to see, ears to hear, and hearts that are ready to receive that which is for us this afternoon. Lord, we've had such a great day of fellowship, uh, and we thank you for that. We praise you and pray that for these next moments you would speak to us individually by the Spirit of God. Challenge us uh, in areas that need to be as we would seek to be that uh, kind of person that offers you praise and glory and worship for who you really are. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Son's Redemption. I know this is mostly familiar to, to us, but the Lord Jesus Christ purchased our redemption with his blood and forgave us of all our sin. Now we may at times say that flippantly. We may at times say that without a a full understanding and a, a grave appreciation of that reality. Let me say it again. The Lord Jesus Christ purchased our redemption with his blood and forgave us all our sin. That ought to be a thought that just moves us incredibly. Redemption. This is one of those words I said earlier that the Puritans would choke up. You could hear it in their throat when they would preach and there would be tears streaming down their eyes as they would say the word redemption because it had such an incredible meaning to them. What is redemption? It is the act of paying a ransom to deliver one in bondage. The act of paying a ransom to deliver one in bondage. In other words, it is to liberate a slave. That's where we get the word redemption from. It is a slavery metaphor. Church, we must remember what I'm about to say. We must remember this constantly. We were enslaved to sin. We lived in the domain of darkness. We were without God and without hope in the world. We were chained to our trespasses. We were afflicted and in bondage to our own evil. We were dead in our depravity. And we were under the condemnation of God. We bent our backs under the weight of our own iniquity and served the prince of this world and the powers of darkness. That was our position outside of Christ. And at the appointed time, the perfect, peerless, Son of God took on flesh in order that he might ransom a chosen people with his blood, forgive their incalculable debt of sin and bring them to the Father as a trophy of his abundant grace. That's what redemption is. That's what it cost. Only in Christ can our sins be atoned. 
Only in Christ can the debt of our sin be paid. We are spiritually bankrupt. We have nothing to bring to our redemption save only the sin from which we must be redeemed. One of the Puritans said. In Titus chapter 2 and verse 14, Paul to Titus says, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Remember what I said this morning. We are not here for ourselves. This has never been about us. In fact, the whole plan of redemption, the whole plan of salvation has never really been about you. It's always been about God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit. It was always about presenting to the Father the grace of God that has been employed and bringing those who He has redeemed and placing them as a trophy of His grace at the foot of the Father. It's never been about how good you are. It's never been about what potential lies in you. It has always been about the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and this was about the praise of his glorious grace when we get a hold of that we never have problems with pride when we get a hold of this truth we never we never have to worry about well you know what uh, I'm so talented I have so much self-esteem the egotistical spirit of the age that exists in the world cannot exist in the life of a Christian if we really get a hold of this truth it's never been about you it's never been about me it's to the praise of his glorious grace grace. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, the apostle Peter says, you were ransomed, purchased, redeemed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Precious blood of Christ. We note also in our text In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Notice this next phrase, in all wisdom and insight. The redemptive operation of God is on display as his wisdom and insight. This was not a man-made concept. Salvation has never been a man-made thing. This is not something that we forged in our own minds. This was from the Father, through the Son, and by the Spirit. Remember that. We said that this morning. It's always from the Father. It's always through the Son. And it is always applied by the Spirit. That's the theological pattern of redemption. The plan was forged in the mind of God the Father. And it is an exhibition of His transcendent wisdom. And that is why I can say with absolute confidence, like I did earlier, I do not understand all the intricacies of how salvation works. We talked about sovereign election. We talked about uh, the decision made by an individual to trust Christ and, and the decision that's required and faith that's required. All of those things. We do not have the answers on all of that. We like to put it in little, uh, little boxes and say, well, you know, God does this and we do that. And here's the human, here's the human part. Here's the God part. We don't know all the intricacies. You know why? This is transcendent wisdom that formed this plan of salvation. So we must just teach the truth. God chose. We respond in faith and believe the gospel. How does that operate? How is that harmonized? I don't know. I don't need to know. It's the wisdom of God and his insight. In fact, 1 Corinthians 1.24 says, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and The wisdom of God. You say, how can I know the wisdom of God? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the embodiment of God's wisdom. That's why he took on flesh. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 1.24, right here, that Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God 
on display. I want you to notice verses 9 and 10 as well. The Bible says, Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. I want you to note that little word mystery. Mystery. The mystery of election. The mystery of predestination, the mystery of a permanent redemption and the forgiveness of sin was once a veiled concept, something that was not fully known. That's what a mystery means in the scripture. But now it is understood as God's plan for the fullness of time. We are so privileged, church, to live on this side of the covenant. Because we have been unveiled to us the glorious gospel that the mind of God is on display. And we have the privilege of seeing this outworking of the gospel. I'm so glad I live in this dispensation of grace. Uh, Obviously God's sovereign. He puts us where he wants to. But I'm so glad I'm here. I would not like to be in the Old Testament. I'm so glad that we have seen the, the reality that Christ has come. He's died. He's raised. And this is no longer a mystery. It's revealed to us. Not only did Christ purchase our redemption and forgive our sins, he also brought into total unity the things of heaven with those of earth. Look at the end of verse 10 there. To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, this is a very interesting phrase. There are many ideas of what is actually meant by this. I believe just in the most simplest form that Christ brought into being a plan whereby the former condition of unity prior to the fall and perfection could once again be restored both in heaven and on earth. You see, the Bible tells us that all of creation groans under the weight of sin. Your very body right now is testament to that, is it not? Our bodies are testament to the fact that we groan under sin. We grow old. We're not able to do the things we used to do. We have problems with our bodies. Testament to creation groaning under the weight of sin. But Christ's redemptive work, his redemptive work, opened the way to a new heaven and a new earth, whereby that will be a reality at the end of the age. In Christ, we are recreated. See, in Adam, paradise was lost, but in Christ it is restored. The concept, I believe, of this whole passage here as it relates to uniting all things in him, things in heaven, things in earth, deals with what he is bringing to pass because of his salvation that he brought by way of the redemption. I believe that's what that is all dealing with in that particular passage of Scripture. In verse 11, the Bible says, In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Remember that we are dealing with the second person of the Trinity, that is, the Son. We're dealing with his work and his aspects. As if the blessings were not already sufficient, now we are informed that in Christ... We have obtained an inheritance. An inheritance. As blood-bought children of God, we are the recipients of an immeasurable inheritance. And I want you to notice something really, really important here. This is not in the future tense. Look at the text. 
In him we have obtained an inheritance. Past tense completed. It's not something that we are waiting for, even though it's not fully realized in its total reality. It says there, we have already an inheritance. Past tense. First Peter three, excuse me, first Peter one, three and four says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, interesting, Peter uses exactly the same words as Paul. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Notice what it's towards in verse 4. To an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. Aside from all the blessings we've already seen, the the election of God, the predestination to be adopted as sons, uh, all that is given to us in Christ, on top of all of that, we have this incredible inheritance. I want to ask this question, and this excites me. What are some of the aspects of our inheritance? And there are many. I just want to race you through five of them for you to think about. Five things that relate to our inheritance We're not going to turn anywhere. I'm just going to list them out here for you. Number one, eternal life. Eternal life. Just ponder that for a moment. Eternal life. By the way, not eternal life in the future. It is present tense now. The moment you were converted, eternal life began in you, the Bible tells us. Just because you haven't died and entered into that wonderful place of paradise, it has already begun. Eternal life is now. I've come to give you life now and life that is more abundant. This is eternal life, present tense. Titus 3.7 says, So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's not a future hope. It's a present reality. Our inheritance, eternal life. Second one, a home in heaven. I said I wasn't going to make any comment, but I have to. I'm always very nervous, and I'm finding as I grow as a Christian, as a a preacher as well, I'm always very nervous about teaching on a home in heaven for one reason. I don't want people to be motivated to make a decision because they want to go to heaven. That's the wrong motivation. I don't want people to think that, well, I want to go to heaven, therefore I'm going to trust Christ. That's not why someone goes to heaven. They realize their sin, their depravity and their need of a savior, right? So I'm always a little bit nervous about a home in heaven, but I'm not nervous about it in my own life. I cannot wait. Nothing thrills me more than to be able to one day reach that place and to see my savior. I I just, sometimes I'm speechless as I read places in scripture and I think of that time. When it's all finished, when this land, this world is rolled up like a scroll and we have a new heaven and a new earth in the very presence of God. Jesus said in John chapter 14 and verse 2, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you. Not for me, he says, for you. I'm going for this reason to prepare a place. And if I go. I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there, you may be also. I know for some of you in particular, some of you senior folks, you are so wanting and longing that day. Sometimes I'm sure you think when you get up in the morning and and things aren't working like they're supposed to and the legs don't move or whatever else is going on and you say, man, I just can't wait for heaven. Uh, We all ought to have that attitude. Cannot wait for me to live is Christ. While I'm here, I'm going to live for Christ. Oh, but if I die, I gain. I gain 
Home in heaven. Number three. This one is also helpful. A spiritual body. A new spiritual body. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 1. For we know that if this tent, that is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I reckon there's a few people around the place in particular right now who are saying, Lord, I'm ready for my new body. I'm ready for my new body. I want it now. Throw away the crutches, throw away the wheelchairs, throw away all of the strollers and the the walkers and all those things. And praise God, new body, new body. That is a promise in our inheritance. Number four, heavenly rewards. First Corinthians 3.13, every man's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. Here's the point. Jesus Christ is the foundation and we build upon him. We have the choice of wood, hay, stubble or gold, silver, precious stones. And the difference, I believe, is not the works, but the motive for the works. I don't think it's just that I went to church or I attended this. I think it's my heart's desire towards God. That's the difference between gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. One day there's rewards. Now, again, I get nervous about it because I don't want you to be motivated by the thought of a reward. But the truth is that our God is a reward-giving God. Those who will serve him faithfully, he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. But you know what? All four of those pale into insignificance with number five. What are some of the aspects of our inheritance? God himself. God himself. Revelation 21 and verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Friends, if anything is of greater value to you than that, you're living in idolatry. If there is anything in your life that matters more to you than the reality that one day, like the Apostle Paul, one day after I have finished my journey, after it's all over, I will see his face. And I will see him as he is. That's what the Apostle John said. And for those of you who, some of you, have we shared earlier, have been saved for 60, 70, 80 years You've served him lovingly. You've never seen his face, but you've served him one day face to face. Face to face with Christ my Savior. Face to face, what will it be? When with rapture I behold him. Wow, what a thought. Our inheritance, God himself. That is the quickest summary of the Lord Jesus' work you've ever heard in your life. I don't know if you appreciate how quick that was. I hope you do. The last sub-point for us today is the Spirit's application. Verses 13 and 14, this is what the Scripture says. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. As a result of trusting in the finished atoning work of Jesus Christ, God gives to that individual the Holy Spirit, God himself. Again, a mystery. How does this work? I come to the Father by means of the Son 
I'm converted and changed and transformed and justified and God himself comes to live within. It just doesn't work in our minds. How does this work? Well, you know why it doesn't work? Because this is God who fashioned this plan. This wasn't our plan. No wonder we can't fully understand it. But yet the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit comes to live within. And I need to clarify a couple of things here that are really important to understand in the Scriptures. This is not a separate unction. There are those today who would have us believe that they have the ability or the gift to pronounce or give the Holy Spirit to another. I'm sorry, but that's not biblical. That's not biblical. The Bible makes it very, very clear that he is not given in parts. He is not given in by man. In fact, remember Simon the sorcerer who wanted the power of the Spirit of God. And Paul had a real go at him because the reality of it is you can't give the Holy Spirit to another. That is God's gift to man at the point of conversion. In the, Acts, in the book of the Acts, we read that there were times where the Holy Spirit came upon people later on. But that was at that particular time. It was a transitional time. Now we read in Romans chapter 8 that if someone doesn't have the Spirit of God, he's none of his. If you don't have the Spirit of God, you are not a believer. The Bible makes it very, very clear. The fullness of the Spirit of God indwells every Christian on the planet from the moment of conversion. Let me just clarify this as well. None of you have any more of the Holy Spirit than I do or vice versa. Every single person has the fullness of the Holy Spirit indwelling. The question is not, do you have the Holy Spirit in its fullness? The question is, are you walking in the Spirit? So what's the difference between Christians? Only one difference. Those who walk in the Spirit and those who do not. That's the difference between Christians. The difference between a carnal Christian and a holy Christian is the same thing. One who walks in the Spirit or one who does not. But look at what Paul says. Sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Again, I'm going to make this very brief, but I've got to just tell you this word. You need to look this word up sometime, sealed. It has two meanings, two ideas. One is it is a proof of purchase. The other is a claim of property. The presence of God within is the proof of purchase. You know what that means? That means that when Christ redeemed me, the proof of purchase was the down payment of the Holy Spirit given to you. That's the proof of purchase. But it also designates that the Christian is now the property of God. No longer under the domain of darkness, the chains of iniquity. No longer under that. No longer under the slave market of sin. They are now owned by God. And you, you'll probably remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, your bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost which you have within you. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. Proof of purchase and the claim of property. To be sealed, church, is to be secure. Since the Holy Spirit is God's seal, it is foolishness that we would think that there is ever a way that we could become unsealed. And yet we have myriads of people teaching that you can lose your salvation. At the core of this doctrine of being sealed by the Holy Spirit is eternal security. You know how I know that? Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6 says that he who began a good work will complete it. If I can jump out the boat, then his promise does not remain. God said, I initiated this. The, Holy, uh, the, the Son of God uh, produced this reality within, within you. The Holy Spirit was given to you. And he is the sealing eternal security of the believer. If you can lose this, then you can lose the whole thing. 
And the Bible makes it clear that God has put his seal on us and given his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The Holy Spirit is our guarantee of the fullness of our inheritance in Christ. This word guarantee, really quickly before we finish, this is a very interesting word. It means a down payment. It means a deposit, a pledge of security. Now, I've not had the opportunity to purchase a house in my life, but you need to have a significant amount of money in order to place that down as a deposit. Depending on the amount of your house, you may need thirty, forty, or fifty thousand dollars before you could even get a loan. And so you put down that deposit as an amount, and that is the guarantee that you're going to pay the rest. We understand that concept. That's the first payment. You're going to go and buy a car and you go down and you see that car. You might put a $1,000 deposit on that car and say, I'll be back. And if you're not, you lose it, right? In the human realm, we know that. Now, let me ask you this. If the Holy Spirit is God's deposit upon your eternity, do you think God pays his bills? Do you think that God is going to somehow say, yeah, you know what, I gave you the deposit, but because of your bad behavior or your bad deeds, I'm removing that deposit? Absolutely not. God says the deposit is the surety. This is the absolute certainty that heaven is yours. The inheritance is yours. Your sanctification is happening. Your glorification is happening. The new heavens are happening. All the outstanding promises that I have said are happening are going to happen because I gave you the deposit. I made the payment so you would know. This is the guarantee. The Holy Spirit within you is the guarantee of your eternity. If you do not have the Holy Spirit, you have no guarantee of the future. God always comes through. What he says he will do. He's not like us. He's not fickle like we are, changing our minds. He is immutable, unchanging, without variance. So here's the question, how certain is my salvation and my inheritance? As certain as the presence of the Spirit within you. That's how certain it is. Here's our conclusion for the day to wrap up this whole passage of Scripture. By the way, I do think there should be extra points for me covering three verse, verse 3 all the way to three fourteen. I normally get stuck on a word. Anyway, I'm not sounding my own praises here, but it is unusual. All of these blessings are not intended to make you feel good. Do we get that? You don't, if you go away from this message and you say, oh, I feel good now. Something's gone wrong. I've failed. Someone's failed. Your own heart has failed. Whatever it is, because that's not the point. It's not for you to go away with pride and say, look at what's all mine in Jesus Christ and be somehow filled and puffed up with pride. Because you know what the final phrase in our text here is? And it's been the whole way along in verse 14. To the praise of his glory. Again, church, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about him. So here's the question in conclusion. How has God poured out his blessings upon you? In summary, he chose you. He adopted you. He redeemed you. He forgave you. He lavished His grace upon you. He revealed His will to you. He has an inheritance for you. He sealed you. Wow! How good, how great, how incredible is our God. This sentence, verses 3 to 14, is a blessed benediction. 
an anthem of praise, a doxology which promotes the glory of God and His abundant grace. This, this is God's eulogy. Father, thank You for uh, Your Word. Lord, thank You for this tremendous portion of Scripture. Uh, Lord, so much is here, uh, and I realize that uh, so much has been left out, but I thank You for uh, giving us an opportunity to look at it together, to study it. Uh, And I just pray that uh, these thoughts would, uh, Lord, fill us with such joy uh, in who You are. Uh, Lord, not to fill us with pride, but to fill us with a holy reverential awe for who You are and all that You've done. Uh, Lord, we, uh, we come together today as celebrating 17 years of this local church, your goodness and faithfulness over that time. And Lord, I can't think of a better text than to look at the one we just did. Uh, because as we would continue to look at these truths, uh, Lord, we will honor you and we will offer you due reverence and respect, love you supremely, understand our place, understand the will of God, understand the proclamation of the gospel that needs to be sent out to those outside. Uh, Lord, all of these things are found in this text, and we thank you for this time together, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.